Amen. Church, I invite you to open with me this morning to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 1. If you have any kiddos that would like to go out for children's church right now, now would be the time to do that. That's kindergarten through second grade. Maybe we have a few of those. There they are. Okay. While the rest of you are turning with me to John chapter 9, they'll head out. We've been walking through this series of sermons that we've called, Who is Jesus? And that question is very important as we consider John's gospel in particular. Because you see, in John's gospel, he records very strategically the miracles of Jesus. He doesn't include all of them, and he includes some that no one else includes. He does this for a very important purpose. To paint a picture of who Jesus is, not just the physical realities of who he is, but also the spiritual implications of who Jesus is as well. We've seen this through the first five miracles that we've studied. This morning we come to the sixth miracle of Jesus here in John chapter 9. It's the longer account that we're going to look at together. And yes, we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. So I'm going to try to be brief with the introduction to the sermon. You see... Each of Jesus' miracles, this should not be foreign to us by this point, each of Jesus' miracles, they point to a deeper spiritual truth. Now, we've seen this again and again. Now, sometimes that spiritual truth is, we've got to dig a little deeper for it. We've really got to take our time. We've got to walk through some deep waters to find that and to see that clearly. And sometimes it's at surface level. I'm grateful this morning that it's at surface level. It takes a whole chapter to look at it. But in fact, the spiritual implications are very clear. It may be surprising, in fact, that this particular miracle we're looking at today is only specifically discussed in detail in two verses. Out of 41 verses in chapter 9, the the incredible miracle working power of Jesus is only put on display in two verses. This is what this tells us. It tells us that there's a deeper spiritual truth that is clearly described here. Here's what we're going to find this morning. Jesus came to give sight to the blind. Jesus came to give sight to the blind. Now this is what is important that we consider as we begin our journey through this chapter. We have to understand that there are more victims of blindness in this passage besides the one who is physically blind. In fact, he has, he has given the least amount of physical attention from Jesus. Again, only two verses, Jesus interacts with him physically. The rest of it is just a conversation. You see, this passage is divided up actually into six different conversations. We've got Jesus talking to a, a number of different people. We have the Pharisees talking to the one who is healed and also his family. And see, in all of these conversations, what John is painting a picture of here is the spiritual blindness of everyone involved. How the religious people missed who Jesus is. How the very man who was healed, he also missed it. He was still spiritually blind, although he had received his physical sight. And what we're going to learn this morning, consider this, is that to some degree or another, every one of us are spiritually blind. To to some degree or another, even if we are born-again believers, there are times in our lives where there are things that distract us or interfere with our walk with Jesus and, and cause us to be derailed in our faith, so to speak. For some of you this morning, 
the, the causes of spiritual blindness we're going to see, it may be the very thing that has kept you from a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to find some people here that were hung up on some issues, some questions that they had. And as Jesus began to answer these questions, they found his answers to be unsatisfactory. Some of them walked away. Some of them were disgusted by him, as we've seen already. There were people who had varying reactions to Jesus' ministry. It's no different here. Some of them wanted to arrest him. Some of them wanted to crucify him. Some of them wanted to make him king. And some, a very small few, few amount of people, they wanted to follow him. So my question for you is this. Will you consider just for a moment these symptoms of spiritual blindness? Will you take note of this? Even if maybe each Sunday you come to this time of the service, you're like, hey, you know, it's just a great speech or something. And maybe that's what you consider this time to be. I want you to listen carefully to God's word this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover. And I believe God's word is absolutely clear that his desire through the power of his word, the truth of his gospel, is to give sight to the blind. Would you stand with me and honor the reading of God's word? John chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. We're going to read just the first 12 verses. I know some of y'all said, oh no, I'm not even going to stand up. There's 41 of them. Just 12. As he was passing by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day, not is coming when no one can do work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground. He made some mud from the saliva and, and he spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him. I want you to wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left and washed, and he came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, they said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? And some said, he's the one. Others were saying, no, but, but it just looks like him. And he kept saying, I am the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, he made mud, he spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and, and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. And he said, I don't know. Let's pray together. Lord, we trust the sufficiency and the power of your word this morning. And God, I pray that you will use the power of your word, the power of your spirit to truly open the eyes of the blind. Lord, not necessarily the physically blind this morning, but the spiritually blind. Lord, I pray that if, if any of these hindrances are true for anyone in this room, that this morning you tear down those walls. Lord, that you make the truth of your word clear. Lord, as we pray often, we ask you to do something that only you can do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Again, we're looking at at five symptoms of spiritual blindness in the first five conversations that we find in John chapter 9. We just read a couple of those, and then we're going to continue throughout the rest of the chapter, and everything culminates 
with the conversation, the sixth conversation, where Jesus paints a very clear picture of how spiritual blindness is ultimately cured. So hang on with me till that sixth one, okay? So we're going to cover a lot of ground as quickly as we possibly can to get to that sixth conversation, the, the, really the pivotal conversation between Jesus and the blind man. All right, so let's look at these symptoms of spiritual blindness this morning. In the first seven verses, we find this. Spiritual blindness may be caused by an unreconciled tension between God's goodness and suffering. That's a big statement. Let's consider it carefully. Spiritual blindness may be caused by an unreconciled tension between God's goodness and human suffering. You see, the scene is introduced in verse 2 by, by what should be considered an honest question from the disciples. I want you to look at that with me again. Notice what the disciples say. It's, it's an anonymous question. We're not told specifically who it was. But the disciples asked him, Rabbi or teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Notice with me that the disciples didn't necessarily have, a, have any inclination that Jesus was going to do anything with this question. It was an honest question. They were considering, based upon their religious background, their biblical understanding, what in the world could have happened for this man to endure such suffering in his life? After all, he was blind from birth. There had never been a point in this man's life where he would have seen the sunshine. This was immense human suffering. He was left in the throes of society, if you will, at the will of the people just to sustain his life. And the disciples had an honest question. Why is this so? For the disciples, it seems that there are only two possible reasons for the blind man's plot. We see that in verse 2. Perhaps they drew this understanding from Exodus chapter 34 and verse 7. This was key to their understanding. Moses was teaching the people of Israel then, and he said, But he, meaning God, will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. You see, perhaps they had that very biblical understanding that there was this understanding of divine retribution, if you will, on the sins of the father on the third and the fourth generation, the children, the offspring, if you will. The biblical account also records instances of such divine retribution for sin. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. You see, David and Bathsheba, they had an affair David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Bathsheba conceived of a son, and the son is not even given a name in the passage. This is incredible to me, that David's firstborn son is not even given a name. What we find to be true is as a consequence to their sin together, this innocent child dies in infancy. Again, it was David's wrongdoing that caused all this to happen. So we see in Scripture that there is this understanding of divine retribution for sin. But in contrast to this generalization, to make it even more complicated, if we go to the book of Job, we find that Job's miserable comforters, we call those his supposed friends, they come to him and they say, Job, you must have really done something wrong to be in the shape that you're in. In fact, they accuse Job over the course of their several conversations there that you must be the chief of all sinners because your life is a mess. And over and over again, Job portrays himself as innocent. And ultimately, God says at the conclusion of that book, he says, this suffering has happened at my will. It's not necessarily because of your wrongdoing. 
In fact, if we look at Job chapter one, we find that the reason Job suffered wasn't because he was sinful, it was because he was righteous. And so here's what we need to recognize. The Bible is not clear concerning the cause of particular human suffering, even though we beg for it to be. We long for scripture to be clear on the issue of particular human suffering. Now sure, we can go to Genesis chapter three, and we can see when suffering entered the world in a very general sense, right? Genesis chapter three, the first sin ever committed that caused the brokenness in the world that we see. But when we consider particular human suffering, the people who we might consider innocent, and they are suffering, much like this blind man here, the Bible is not always clear. You see, just like the disciples here, we also want to reason that suffering must have a root cause. The the divine equation between suffering and God's goodness, it pleads for balancing. This is why it's important that we consider how Jesus ultimately answers this question. He says a couple of things. The first one is in verse 3. Notice this with me. Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. You see, Jesus proposes that even suffering brings glory to God. Now, this should not be a foreign concept to us. We've talked about how God uses suffering to refine us, to shape us into who he desires for us to be. Paul is abundantly clear. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, he says these words, We know that all things, the good, the bad, the pleasant, the difficult, the blessings and the suffering, they work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. But maybe that's not satisfactory for you this morning, and maybe it wasn't satisfactory for those listening there as well. So in verses 4 and 5, we find that Jesus does this regarding suffering. He points to his greater work. It seems as though Jesus gets distracted by the issue, if you look at it with me. Jesus continues, he says, We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. That's a key concept. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You see, the theme of darkness, in contrast with light, it comes up again and again in John's gospel, particularly related to the teachings of Jesus. An example of this is seen in chapter 8 and verse 12. Jesus actually says there, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, Jesus, when he talks about darkness here, every time he mentions it, he's pointing ultimately to the cross of Calvary. Ultimately, he's pointing to the pinnacle of human suffering, the pinnacle of suffering that this, that this world has ever seen before. An innocent Savior, the God-man, Jesus Christ, suffering on a sinner's cross for the sake of those who had sinned. And so Jesus is pointing to this greater work, this greater purpose in suffering, particularly his suffering. This is perhaps why Paul, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, when he's talking about his own suffering, he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Paul, having this perspective of eternity, he says, I will endure all manner of suffering because I know there is something more. There is a greater purpose that God has in store for us. And with that, Jesus performed the actual miracle in verses 6 and 7. He takes the mud, he smears it on the man's eyes, and tells him to go and wash. And in a really anticlimactic way, it just says, he came back seeing. Now, I can 
I cannot imagine that this man walks back from the pool and he's just kind of moping along. No, he's seeing things for the very first time. This is a big deal. And so the fact that John doesn't emphasize the reaction of the man, I think it says much about the greater importance of this passage. The bigger message, if you will. You see, although the man could see, there was still this blindness. Listen, but the disciples, it seems, were satisfied with everything Jesus has said up to this point. Because after this moment, the disciples are absent from the story. They don't talk anymore, which isn't like them. They like to talk. And so Jesus, he gives them these answers about suffering, and I hope that they're satisfactory for you as well. You can write these down. Some lessons on suffering. There's three of them. Number one, suffering is never without purpose. Suffering is never without purpose. Even the darkest moments of human suffering, it's never without a purpose. Now, don't, don't discount me there. Don't discount the word there. Let's continue. Number two, suffering, at least in a Christian sense, is never experienced in isolation. Suffering, at least in a Christian sense, is never experienced in isolation. You see, Jesus did not leave this man alone in his human condition, in his suffering. He entered that moment with him, and he healed him. Now, it might have been 30, 40 years this man might have been living blind, and yet Jesus entered that moment of suffering. Jesus does the same exact thing for us as Wretched sinners, he enters our human suffering and he, he went to the cross of Calvary not because he deserved to die but rather because we deserve that divine retribution and yet he didn't leave us in that suffering state. No, he went to the cross for us. Why? Because suffering is never experienced in isolation. Finally, and this is perhaps the most important, an explanation of suffering requires a divine perspective that we do not possess. This is why the Bible is constantly in tension about this issue. We see divine retribution clearly on display, and then we see other places where suffering is not the consequence of sin. You see, I believe that the reason Jesus takes the time to unpack this issue, and the reason John highlights this conversation, is because this unreconciled tension is a stumbling block for many. It's the cause of great spiritual blindness. Perhaps even for you this morning, this unreconciled tension is the reason you're not trusting Jesus now. I understand I could have spent 45 minutes this morning and still wouldn't have satisfactorily answered your question. But the truth is this. These three things we hold fast to, I want you to hold tighter to those than you do your rejection of God in spite of suffering. These unanswered questions, if you will, they may remain unanswered, but don't let that be what keeps you from trusting the Lord. Number two, I've got to move quick. Verses eight through 12. Spiritual blindness may be caused by misunderstanding Jesus. By misunderstanding Jesus. Again, we've already seen the mixed reactions to Jesus' miraculous activities. Some chose to follow him, others wanted to arrest him, and still others wanted to make him king. We saw that last week. But here we encounter a new response. You see, in the debate described in verses 8 through 12, and I'm not going to go through that carefully, we see the crowd interrogating the blind man. This man who was once blind, and now he is seeing, and they have a lot of questions. You see, their misunderstanding is revealed in a couple of ways. Number one, in verses 8 and 9, they questioned the identity of the man. They said, surely this isn't the same guy. 
There's no way this is him. There's no way that Jesus could do this type of miraculous activity. There's no way anybody could do this. Verses 11 and 12, they then questioned the identity of Jesus. They said, well, well, fine, if you're now seeing and you were once blind, where is this man who did this to you? But you see, the tension of this moment, it hinges on a question in verse 10. And I do want you to look at that with me. They asked him, then how were your eyes opened? And unfortunately, we find his response in verse 11. He says this, the man called Jesus. He made mud, he spread it on my eyes, and he told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he, they say in verse 12? He said, I don't know. Now let's be careful here. You can't blame this guy for not knowing. The last conversation he had with Jesus, he was still a blind man. Jesus said, go to the pool and wash. And he didn't see Jesus. He heard a voice, but he didn't see who this was. Even if he had seen Jesus face to face at this moment, we're going to find this in just a second, he wouldn't have known Jesus. What is the implication here? Knowing of Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. Knowing of Jesus is not the same, church, as knowing Jesus. You see, knowing the truth about Jesus is completely different than knowing Jesus in a saving relationship. We're going to see that by the time we get to the last verse of this chapter, that Jesus reconciles this tension. But for us, I want us all to carefully consider this. Because I think we, we really mess this up as a church often. Me asking you to intellectually give credence to who Jesus is. In other words, affirm that Jesus was a real person. Affirming the facts about Jesus that we find in Scripture. We never find that that is sufficient for a saving relationship with Jesus. Listen carefully. Even Satan himself believes the claims that Jesus makes in Scripture. That is why he is so fearful of his activity. A saving relationship, church, it's one where we not only give mental assent, we're not, not only where we affirm the facts about Jesus, it's not just that. We follow Jesus. We know him. We trust him. We walk in relationship with him. This is why the command given in Scripture again and again is not know Jesus. No. The command given again and again by Jesus himself is follow me. Follow me. Don't allow your spiritual blindness to be caused by a misunderstanding of Jesus or misrepresentation of him. Thirdly, notice this in verses 13 through 17. Spiritual blindness, it may be caused by a love of legalism. A love of legalism. Now, I know that word legalism may be new to you. Let's walk through it carefully. Based on our study of John's gospel thus far, and we didn't read this part of the passage, so we're going to go back to that. In verses 13 and 14, we're introduced to some characters and to a circumstance. It's very important. They should throw up some red flags for us. Look at it. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. Now, even if you are new to Scripture, and he, but if you've been walking through this with us, you understand already the Pharisees are bad news, right? These are the religious elite. These are the religious authorities and they are the very enemies of everything that Jesus has been doing all along. Verse 14, the picture gets even worse. Notice this. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened the eyes was a Sabbath. Uh-oh. This is not good. 
So we're talking to the Pharisees. These are the keepers of the religious law. And it's clear here in verse 14, like Jesus had done again and again, he had broken that religious law. So, in response, the Pharisees, they make two alarming accusations of Jesus in verse 16. Look at that with me. This should unsettle all of us. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. What an alarming accusation. Because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? So they make two accusations. One, they say, Jesus can't be from God. That's troubling enough. But then they say, not only is he not from God, but he's a sinful man. And we know Jesus to be what? The sinless man, right? You see, their blindness was rooted in a false understanding of faith. You see, Jesus walked among them, and yet they missed knowing him because they treasured their law far more than treasuring Jesus. They were looking at a man who was once blind but now can see. And in spite of all of that, instead of being concerned with who this Jesus was, wanting to know him, they immediately rejected him. Why? Because they treasured their law. They treasured their ritual. Before we are too quick to judge, beloved, we also like to think that keeping the rules, following the rituals, And practicing our religion is more precious than actually knowing Jesus. I fear that in this room this morning, there may be some who practice the rituals, who know the religion, who do all the right things. They check the right boxes, but they don't know this Jesus. We cannot equate knowing Jesus with practicing religion. It's not the same. And this was the cause of their blindness here. But notice this fourth cause of blindness. As we look at verses 18 through 23, we find this. Spiritual blindness may be caused by a fear of man. It may be caused by a fear of man. Unsatisfied with the answers that they had received from the healed man, the Pharisees then, in verses 18 through 23, they turned their attention to his parents. They said, well, if this man can't help us out, surely we'll talk to his mom and dad. So they began questioning them about the legitimacy of this miracle. But the pivotal part of this exchange, it occurs in verses 21 and 22. Look at that. They're questioning the family, and this is their response. Actually, go back to verse 20. They said this, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Statement of obvious fact, they say. But we don't know how he now sees and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. And then John gives us this explanation in verse 22. He says, his parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews Since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. Listen, this was their chance. This was their moment to put Jesus on display and to say, look, our son who was blind from birth, he can now see, and this man is the one who did it. They possessed that truth, and yet they walked away from that opportunity. Why? I think it's clear. They were afraid. They were afraid of the consequences. I fear that many of us do this very same thing in our witnessing opportunities. We're doing this study, and we conclude it tonight. It's called Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out. 
It's a study of evangelism and how we as Christians are called to share the gospel, even in everyday conversations. And the call of this study has been, we don't have to freak out about sharing Jesus with other people. It's not something to be afraid of. If Jesus really is our Savior, if we really believe in him and we've really trusted him and chosen to follow him, it should be easy to talk about the gospel. But unfortunately, in our churches, we trust that activity to religious professionals. We trust that activity to those who might be educated, who can answer the hard questions. We bring them to the pastor. We bring them to the deacons. We bring them to the Sunday school teacher. We say, listen, they've got a hard question. I need you to talk to them. And we don't share our faith. If every person in this room really took hold of the responsibility we have, the joy we have to share the gospel, it would turn this community upside down. But unfortunately, we miss it. And here's why. We somehow equate evangelism with all the wrong things. Listen carefully. Inviting someone to church is not the same as evangelism. It's not. Evangelism is actually proclaiming the gospel. It is actually sharing the good news. I'm not telling you not to invite people to church. Please do. But don't leave it up to that moment that opportunity, that one hour on Sunday morning for them to hear the gospel and respond to Jesus. It is my greatest joy to share the gospel. I love it. It's why beyond this opportunity on Sunday morning, I love meeting strangers, talking to them about Jesus, and letting them know how they can know him. But church, my prayer for all of us is that we get it as well. These folks had this opportunity. They had the chance to put Jesus on clear display. And sure, they testified to the work of Jesus. They said, look at what he did. But then they said, but we don't want to call him the Messiah just yet. We don't want to give him that credit in our lives at this moment. And they did all of that because of fear. So spiritual blindness may be caused by fear of man. But finally, note, note this last cause of blindness in verses 24 through 34 the longest section of the passage. Spiritual blindness may be caused by denial of Christ's authority. It may be caused by denial of Christ's authority. See, the final act of interrogation, it takes place in these 11 verses here. The Pharisees, they once again, they turn their attention to the healed man. They didn't get what they wanted from his parents, and so they thought, well, maybe we'll go back to him again. We'll double back, and so just really the passing the buck continues, and they they finally bring their final opposition to what has taken place among them in verse 34. Notice what happens in these verses here. It says in verse 24 that a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and they told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. What they say is, we want you to give glory to God and not to this man who healed you, supposedly, because we know that man is a sinner. So what they do is they take God and they put him in opposition to Jesus. Now, if we're believers, we understand that just doesn't work because Jesus is who? He is God. He is sinless and not sinful. But they put all of this intention with each other and what they do is they deny the authority that Jesus had to do what he did. Notice finally in verse 27, I love this part of the conversation. 
It's as if the, the blind man who is now healed, he gets tired of the conversations, the tension, the argument, and he kind of gets smart mouth with them. I like to imagine I might have done what he did. Verse 27, I love this. I'm going to read it just like he might have said it. I already told you, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? In other words, I've told you all of this once before. I've already answered all your questions. And then he says this. I love this. You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? Okay. He didn't get smacked across the face then, but it was coming. And ultimately what happens in verse 34, it says that they cast him out. They were so dissatisfied, so disgusted with his testimony that they cast him out. Ultimately because he gave authority to Jesus. Ultimately because he was coming to understand this man named Jesus. He was coming to understand the the tension he had with the religious community. And ultimately because he had this question about discipleship. This word disciple is important here. You see, the word disciple, it's, it's one who follows after and seeks to learn from another. This word is important throughout the New Testament, but especially in the Gospels. Because Jesus tells us to do what in Matthew 28? To go and make disciples. What does that mean? It means to lead people to follow and trust Jesus and to learn from Jesus. You see, I fear that, that just like the Pharisees here, there are many of us who don't give Jesus that authority in our lives. We like to learn from all the wrong people. We like to look in all the wrong places for lessons in life and how to parent our children better, how to run our homes better, how to balance our bank accounts better, how to do our jobs better. We like to look in all the wrong places. And yet Jesus really is the answer. He really is the final authority. But finally, all of this transpires. We get to verse 35. The most important conversation that happens out of all six of these. The arguments are over at this point. And Jesus gives us what is the cure to this blindness. You see, a right view of Jesus is the cure to spiritual blindness. Knowing Jesus as we should is the cure to this blindness. Keep in mind, the blind man at this point had never seen Jesus face to face. He had heard his voice. He had followed him obediently in this strange activity, but he did not yet know Jesus. So look with me at verses 35 through 38 at this conversation. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that that I may believe in him? And Jesus answered, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. A couple things I want you to notice here, very quickly. I want you to notice the divine initiative in verse 35. It says that Jesus went and found him. We sing a song about that, right? It's called Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. You see, that's exactly what Jesus did here. It says that he, he heard that they had thrown him out of the synagogue. He, he heard that the arguments had not gone well. And so what did he do? He went and found this man, Jesus, the Son of God, about all of his busy activity of, of reaching people around him and moving from place to place, heading towards the cross. He took a moment and he went and found this one man to have this conversation. 
But notice this also. I want you to see the progression of this man's understanding of Jesus. I want you to see how he grew in his understanding by the time we get to verse 38. Well, who does he refer to Jesus as in verse 38? The Lord. He says, I believe, Lord. Now, you probably missed this, so I want to walk back through it. You can jot it down if you want to very quickly. In verse 11, this man referred to Jesus as the man they called Jesus. He was just some guy. He knew his name. He knew his name was Jesus. That was it. In verse 17, though, in one conversation, he calls him a prophet. That's a little more than just a man. That means that he's somehow sent from God. And then finally, in verse 33, he continues, and he actually says he is from God. And so he's beginning to understand, really, the implications of who Jesus is. Verse 35, when Jesus begins to introduce himself for the first time, he calls Jesus the Son of Man. And then finally, in verse 38... He calls him Lord. Calling Jesus Lord is a far cry from calling him some man named Jesus. What had happened? God, by his initiative, had revealed to this man who was once blind but now could see. In spite of all the spiritual boundaries and obstacles and blindness around him, he had revealed to this man exactly who Jesus was. True sight did not happen for this man until he saw Jesus rightly as his Lord and as his Savior. My question for you this morning is very straightforward and very simple. Do you have a right view of Jesus? Do you see him the way this man now saw him? Or, we've seen all the symptoms of blindness this morning. Perhaps for you, the cause of your blindness is an unreconciled tension between suffering and God's goodness. Maybe it's a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Maybe it's a love of religion and ritual over knowing Jesus. Maybe it's a fear of man. We talked about that. Or finally, maybe it's a denial of Christ's authority in your life. My question is this. By God's initiative, I truly believe he has met you right where you are this morning. In spite of your blindness. And no, he's not telling you to go put mud on your eyes and go wash in a body of water. But he's met you here this morning. He's maybe torn down some of these obstacles, these hindrances to you knowing him. And my challenge to you is this. Follow Jesus. Trust him the way that this man did. Know that he has clearly shown you this morning that he is the son of God. That he is the one who went to the cross of Calvary for you. That he is the one, the only one that is worthy of your belief.